Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson. We just finished watching Tour de France Stage 2, and it was an incredible finish to the stage. It was like watching a monument like Milano San Remo in a Grand Tour stage because I'll be honest with you all, and I guess this is why some of you might listen to this podcast in lieu of having to watch the whole race, the first three to four hours of this stage were pretty boring and not much happened. I mean, we'll tell you a few of the highlights in those first four hours, but then the last 20 kilometers, absolutely gangbusters. We're going to go through the stage from start to finish and let you know what happened. But yeah, Benji, did you feel the same way about the stage or are you one of those sick individuals that can just watch the scenery go past for hundreds of kilometers with just an intermediate sprint here or there? Honestly, I could enjoy the stage just like that as well, but I did feel the same way in the sense that I was also not really expecting early action from big favorites or anything. I had my eye on the last two hills when it comes to potential action, and we'll see if that paid off in the summary that is coming here. The minute they rolled out of the neutral zone, just about a break went straight away. And I saw in the live chat of my live stream, people saying things like, oh, Peter Sagan mopping up easy green jersey points once again. And yeah, Sagan got in that break with Trentin, Kasper Askren. It was a very, very strong break. Gogol for NTT, uh, Benoit Klosnifar, our boy for Ajdoual Le Mondial. But yeah, it was Trentin and Sagan who actually duked it out for the intermediate sprint points, which was before the first Category 1 climb of the day. And Trentin actually beat Sagan for those points. But I just want to make a comment off the bat that it's not easy to just get into a Tour de France stage two breakaway. That doesn't just, the DS just doesn't come to you in the morning on the team bus and say, hey, get in the break. And then it's just a magic click of your fingers and you're suddenly in the break. It's a little bit harder than that. And when you watch the race from straight away, you see actually the effort it requires. And that's why it makes Peter Sagan such a special rider being able to do that day in, day out. So he got second in the uh, intermediate sprint. Do you think it's a competition that's just too favorable for the riders who are not pure sprinters like Sagan and it should be more towards the riders like Ewan and Bennett and Gaviria? Or do you think it's a balanced points competition and it is the way it should be now? I enjoy it more the way it is right now. I do believe that a lot of sprinters in the past have already said that they'd love it to be more in their favor because it is still the sprinter's jersey. But I've got the feeling that this gives much more animation in the race. Also, the fact that I do believe that a pure sprinter can sometimes still get the green jersey points. Today, the green jersey points, that intermediate sprint was basically before any climbing happened. So I believe that they could also have done that initiative and tried to go into the breakaway and tried to get that. But then again, they're maybe saving their energy for the coming stages that might be more in their favor. So I believe that it's beneficial for the riders who can do recurring, consistent results when it comes to gaining points throughout stage and at the finish line. And I like it that way. Yeah, I agree. I think I initially used to be on the other side of the argument, but I think it's not Peter Sagan's fault. He's just so talented. And I think we sometimes take that for granted. So he's going to be pretty much a lock for the green jersey, in my opinion. But anyway, that break stayed away and they got given a pretty big leash by the peloton because they were just mainly rulers like Sagan, uh, Askren, uh, Gogol, etc. Um, no GC threats in the breakaway at all. And Ineos, Yumbo, Visma and Co. were more than happy to allow them to 
gained at least they went up to nearly four minutes at one point it didn't get out of control alexander Kristoff was obviously wearing the yellow jersey uae were pacing not too hard on the front i think they were just trying to show the jersey tom skerns lucas postelberger anthony perez was in the breakaway as well and the first climb which was the earliest category one climb i think in the 21st century in terms of its positioning within the race in the tour de france stage two Col de la Colmienne, 17.1 Ks at 6.1%. Absolutely nothing happened. <laughs> 5.1 watts per kilo for 45 minutes. Yeah, that, that's it's good for us, but the riders were chilling. The breakaway pretty much kept their time gap of about three minutes. And, I mean, did you expect anything to happen on that first climb, Benji? I said somewhat at the start that I believed that nothing would really happen there when it comes to GC guys. I also felt like there was no real incentive for the GC to base hard on this climb. Riders like Anala Philippe had Osgren in the breakaway, so the Koenig was put out of the position to base. They didn't have to do it because they had someone at the front. And when it comes to Jumbo, there was no real incentive to for them to hunt down the breakaway at that point, UAE. Had Christoph and Yellow wanted to show that off, I don't believe that they would use their manpower to send Pogacar or Formula to a potential stage win if they want to focus on having Pogacar there for three weeks and not just this one stage. So this was indeed what I was somewhat expecting. And I was kind of happy to see that one of my preview picks was in the breakaway, Cosnefoy. I did expect him to not be in the breakaway and mainly go for the uh, stage win in the end, but I guess I was wrong on that part. So Cosnefoy, he had a massive acceleration at the end of this climb, the first category one. He took the KOM points and went into the virtual KOM jersey. But then Sagan had been distanced on the climb, but I think he knew, okay, I can lose about 10 seconds and I can make it up on the 20-kilometre descent. He was correct in thinking that. They descend for, as I said, 20, 25 kilometres, then straight into another category one climb, the Col de Torini, 15.3 kilometers long at 7.2% average gradient, just a little bit steeper. And Cosnefroy seemed like he'd gone a little bit too hard, unnecessarily hard, the Ajdois, the Mondial rider, to get those KOM points. Is, is that what you thought happened, Benji? Because he got dropped almost straight away on the Col de Torini. No, I agree. I don't feel like he was sandbagging or anything. He really looked really tired at the start of that climb. And he basically kept fighting at the back. I think he gave up a tiny bit at the start. I think Sagan was also dropping slightly at that moment, but Sagan kept like himself at around 30 to a minute. And at that point, Cosnefa came from behind Sagan, flew past him back to the front, then back again, he was up there. Yeah, I mean, a great effort from him. I think ITV called it like a Lazarus resurrection. Cosnefa coming back to take. He then came second at the top of Col de Torini uh, uh, in the breakaway and took this, the second most KOM points. Perez for Kofidis, the French rider, took the, he came first in the sprint for the line. And so they were equal on 18 KOM points each. I have no idea what the rules say about who wears the King of the Mountains jersey, whether it's Cosnefroy, because he won the, sort of the, he had the lead in, over the first climb, the Col de Colmien, but... We'll wait and see. We're obviously recording this straight after the finish. Again, for Col de Torini, the watts per kilo was 5.1, just about 5.2 for the Peloton. So chilling. Again, no, nothing happened on GC at all. Um, you don't you don't go and need, need to watch the whole stage again. 
none of the GC teams really took it up at all. I think Yumba Visma were pacing a little bit, but not not too much, and they were just keeping the breakaway at three to four minutes. And then on the descent, the Col de Torini, which is quite a technical descent, and the riders were actually worried about it because there was gravel on it before. There was loads and loads of hairpins. Yumbo Visma took control over the front. That's why they so I think that's why they started pacing at the end of the climb. So they were at the front. Okay, Samzik tried to get in the lead on the descent, but Yumbo Visma took control and they tried to keep Roglic and Co. and Dumoulin safe. I think Hesse can wild that out on the front. And yeah, is there anything else I've missed on the Col de Torini, Benji? I mean, you guys can probably tell that nothing too exciting GC or stage-wise has happened yet, even though there were two Category 1 climbs. Yeah, it was displayed purely in the fact that Christophe basically almost made it in the peloton to the top. So that means that the pace in the peloton was also not that high. And it also led me to believe that the break could actually make it at that point. But suddenly that started differing already the moment that the downhill hit, because as you might be talking about in a second here, the uh, peloton started speeding up. Yeah, the pace did start to increase and riders, I mean, there is the technical descent with about 75 k's to go on the stage, but then it was a descent where there was still pedaling required and the brake got reeled back in almost before we before we knew it. It went from three minutes down to one minute so quickly. Pogacar had a mechanical midway through the descent and I think he had to have a bike change. Pavel Sivakov, I saw, got dropped with 57.7 k's to go. So that was still pretty much on the descent way before the uh, Col d'Ez climb. So Sivakov not looking too good recovering from that crash. What else have I got? Danny Martinez, did he crash? Where where did Danny Martinez crash, Benji? Was that before Col d'Ez? It was just on top of the Col d'Ez when they went into a shady corner that honestly looked like a dangerous spot. I genuinely saw the corner and I was like, Someone's going to crash there. And three seconds later, I saw Martinez on the floor and I was like, oh God. Yeah. So for the rest of this stage, the profile was they finished the two category one climbs. It's 185 kilometers long. And they then had the cold airs climb 7.8 Ks at 6% average gradient. Then a fairly long downhill of like 10 to 15 kilometers. And then the cold de Castro-Chemin climb and then another descent and then a sort of flat one to 1.5 kilometers into the finish in Nice. There were bonus seconds at the end of the last climb, Col de Catochemin. No bonus seconds at the top of the Col d'Ez. And Yumbo Visma assembled sort of halfway up the Col d'Ez. They were controlling proceedings. Robert Hessink was on the front setting pace, but not really dropping anybody. Like Jasper Stuyven got dropped like halfway up the climb. He, he wasn't getting dropped straight away. I don't think it was a massive pace from Jumbo Visma. It was more a, they were looking to control things and not lose time today. And that's the lens with which we've got to look through what happens next. Hessink goes over the top of Coldairs, keeping Roglic safe. Danny Martinez, as we mentioned, then crashes, I think trying to avoid some road furniture uh, at the top of Coldairs. Hugh Carthy comes back for him, for education first, and then tries paces him back. And they just catch back on at the bottom of the... Col de Chemin. And this is why I said this was like Milano San Remo. We've had two category ones. We've had the Col d'Ez climb where we thought something might happen, but nothing really happened at all. It was still in a new, you know, in neutral gear. And then with about 15, 18 kilometers to go, 170 Ks to go in, in the stage, this final climb of 5.5 Ks at 5.7%. 
completely lit the race up. Were you surprised, Benji, that Jumbo Visma, having been in such a good position and controlling things with Hessink, that Wout van Aert was not able to pull at all for Roglic and Jumbo Visma at the bottom of Col de Chemin? When they were at the bottom of the Chemin climb, I was thinking that they were kind of sparing him because he looked good for a potential stage when there if those guys came over the top earlier on. But then before any proper action happened, Dumoulin crashed, which was a shady crash because basically we Kwiatkowski went past them on the right and tried to get in front of him, but did that way too early and just hit the front wheel of Dumoulin, taking down Dumoulin. But Kwiat quickly turned around to say sorry, but yeah, harm done, unfortunately. Nonetheless, at that moment, Wout van Aert gave his bike to Dumoulin. So after that, he was basically gone there as well. And their plan, I think, of potentially getting him over that Catechemin also didn't work. Because I really believe, from what I saw, that Wout van Aert was not really working at all. Which means that I would think that they were actually going to give him a chance at certain points. But he saw the priority when Dumoulin crashed and he gave his bike. And that's the story of a luxury domestique. I think the way, just taking it a step back just before Dumoulin crashing, and there is there is an argument that Dumoulin was at fault himself. Robin McEwen on the Australian commentary blamed Dumoulin for the crash because Dumoulin was looking over his left shoulder, not watching his front wheel. I think that's kind of unfair because why would he be expecting Kwiatkowski to have been there? Because Dumoulin was on the right-hand side of the peloton. So I think it was Dumoulin didn't move his front wheel. Kwiatkowski moved and chopped Dumoulin's wheel. So I think it's like 75% Kwiatkowski blame. But anyway, just taking it a step back before they started the climb, and I've seen this happen a couple of times, and it kind of happened in yesterday's stage. Jumbo Visma, they had six men present, all in a line, lined up nicely. And then they went through a left-hand corner going to the base of the climb. And Dumoulin, I think it was Dumoulin rather than Coos or Bennett, they lost the wheel of Roglic and lost about six or seven positions and then had to spend, we saw George Bennett. If you watch the climb closely in the last sort of 15 kilometers, you can see George Bennett trying to make his way up in the gutter up the left-hand side to help Roglic and Coos when they're trying to chase later on. So sometimes the positioning in the Yumbo Visma train, when it's not just a pure, you know, mountain 40-minute effort where there's not really any handling required sometimes there's a few issues there but it didn't really affect gc at all and we have to view the rest of the stage through the, through the lens of and i think you're in line with this way of thinking benji tom dumoulin went down there was not too much to be gained on gc for this stage i mean a few seconds here or there and the yellow jersey but nothing too much to be gained on this stage but Dumoulin could have lost a lot of time on this stage and they could have lost that second genuine GC threat, the current third favourite to win this Tour de France. And so Philippe attacked early on the Col de Quatre Chemin climb, much earlier than sort of on the Poggio, although this is a longer climb and a little bit steeper than the Poggio. He attacked very early and Jumbo Visma weren't too fast about bringing it back i think they were they split they decided to split their resources between bennett pacing for roglic and the rest seemed to be helping tom dumoulin and even roglic went back a little bit to help tom dumoulin is that what you think 
Do you think Yamavisma made that decision on the fly, Benji, or it was just chaos? Honestly, I feel like it was kind of just chaos. I am honestly not sure whether it was a decision or not. I also didn't really notice it too much in the sense that I was really captivated by the other action happening at that point. And I believe that I saw a lot of people mention that Jumbo was really losing manpower and wasn't well positioned. But I got to be honest, I did not really follow it myself, but I'm glad you did. Well, I was trying to do two things at once because, yeah, we got this GC action. We're seeing Thibaut Pino at the back of the group in really a weird position, um, seemingly for no reason. He was back there with Rudy Mollard, and they brought him back up. And then, I don't know, I presume he came in at the same time as everybody else. But then you've got this Dumoulin crash and wondering what's happened there. But then at the same time, Julian Alaphilippe, we knew he was going to attack on this climb. We knew, well, I knew. He was going to try and get into the yellow jersey on this stage. He attacks on the Col de Chemin. Nothing really from the peloton except for Bennett pacing for Roglic, maintaining the gap at about 10 seconds. Mark Hirschi, the Swiss rider for Team Sunweb, very strong up-and-coming rider, attacks out of the peloton and kind of gets to Julian Alaphilippe pretty quickly. They then start swapping turns, um, back and forth, maybe a couple of minutes a lap, a couple of minutes elapsed. It is a longer climb than the Poggio. And Mark Hershey, by the way, he came third in Classica San Sebastian last year. Last year, he under 23 world champion in 2018. I think we might have mentioned him in our preview. He's a really, really strong up-and-coming rider. Sunweb are very excited about him. Then Adam Yates, when I think the steam had come out of the Yumbo Visma chase, and Bennett pulled off, and Roglic certainly wasn't going to pace uh, to try and catch back to Alaphilippe. Adam Yates, the British rider for Mitchell and Scott, attacked out of the peloton and bridged across to Alaphilippe. And then there was really no coordinated chase from the peloton because Ineos weren't too bothered about Alaphilippe going into yellow. I don't think Jumbo Visma are too bothered either by Alaphilippe being 10 to 12 seconds or 10 to 18 seconds ahead of Dumoulin and Roglic. So Ineos just put Kwiatkowski on the front to lessen the gap as much as possible. That allowed that trio of Yates, Hershey, and Alaphilippe to work together on that climb and build up a pretty solid gap of, I think, 25 seconds at a certain point. And then when they crested the climb, who did you did you think the breakaway was certainly going to win, Benji? Because I didn't see much of a chase coming out of the peloton. Well, we both called it that Alaphilippe would attack on that climb, and he certainly did. On top of the last climb, that little sprint that they had for the bonus seconds, I became unsure of myself in the sense that I really didn't know which of the three could actually make it. If that front group made it, I expected the chase group to not chase really because in the end we had Jumbo that just had Dumoulin crash, so they're going to lick their wounds a bit and certainly not base it super hard to make sure that Dumoulin even has more trouble at that point. When it comes to the rest in that group, nobody really had plenty of teammates left. We had EF that has lost already Martinez. He was still not back at the, well, he came back for a bit and then dropped again on the Catechemin. And in the end, he was already like three minutes behind at the top of the Catechemin. So he wasn't there. So why would an EF rider like Higita and such pace for themselves at that point? Then we had Ineos. They paced for a tiny bit, but it was just like, keeping their rider safe. It wasn't to go for the stage. I saw an Astana rider at the front at a certain point. 
I think that was to bring Lutsenko to a potential result, but that also didn't really happen. So the chase was kind of a combination of riders that didn't really have to ride it. And therefore, the motivation to chase back the three riders was not there. They did come a tiny bit closer towards the end, but it was only like four seconds difference from the time they had at the top. So yeah, it was down to the three guys to sprint for it. Well, I'm not sure. I think I didn't mention in my little summary of the climb before that for the bonus seconds, Adam Yates beat Julian Alaphilippe for the bonus seconds. And Adam Yates went into the virtual uh, yellow jersey at the top of that climb. Hershey, I think, came third in that sprint. Alaphilippe let it out, and I think he might have held a bit back. But, yeah, Alaphilippe didn't put himself in the best position for that first sprint over the top. Um, but then on the descent, he pressed on really aggressively like we saw he did on the Poggio, but he didn't make any mistakes that I saw on this descent and not as many hairpins, I don't think. But it was just like a Milano San Remo finish, to be honest. They had a, about a 20-second gap or just over at the crest of the climb. They pressed on. They all kept working together really well, Hershey, Adam Yates, and Julian Alaphilippe. And then they come off the descent. The peloton was catching them. And I don't think the client, I mean, the interesting thing about this stage compared to a Milano San Remo is the two category ones because Greg Van Avermaet and riders like him were still in the peloton and in the bunch because it was only a 5%, five kilometer average gradient climb, the Col de Quatre Chemin. But the problem was he didn't have any lieutenants. Riders like him, there's no Alessandro De Marchi, I don't think, style riders who could work to bring back Alaphilippe like you might see after the uh, conclusion of the Poggio in Milano San Remo. But anyway, they keep working together. I was screaming at my TV for Hershey to stop working because I wanted the young lad to get a massive, massive stage win, even though I have criticised uh, Sunweb for not bringing Michael Matthews, but I still I wanted him to get the win. And then... It was kind of like Amstel Gold Race. Adam Yates went on the front. They stopped pulling turns. They they pulled turns together, the trio, and it looked like they were certainly going to win easily. But then with about 1,500 metres to 1,200 metres to go, the cat and mouse games begun. I think people started pulling their turns a little bit softly, and Alaphilippe actually then skipped a turn and went on to Adam Yates' wheel, maybe more worried about Yates because... Yates beat him in the sprint over the top of the last climb. And then they sat up. Yates was at the front. Alaphilippe was second wheel. Hershey third wheel. It was a narrow, straight finish into Nice. Uh, and Yates went on, was first on the barrier looking over his left shoulder. Alaphilippe was then more concerned, I think, about Hershey and uh, the peloton chasing behind. It seemed like Adam Yates had given up the ghost of the stage win. And in a quick interview afterwards, he said, hey, I had nothing left and I knew I wasn't going to win that stage. And we saw in the last 400 metres, because, you know, so much is happening, it's hard to keep focus of the time gaps, the peloton in the foreground chasing these three guys who had pretty much stopped pedalling. And I thought, here we go, Amstelwald all over again. Is it going to be someone like Greg Van Avermaet who's going to come over the top of them? But then Alaphilippe was watching and kind of like the uh, women's La Course race where Longa Borghini triggered Mariana Voss to sprint earlier than she would have wanted to ideally, the impending peloton closing in 
I think made Alaphilippe start his sprint two to four seconds earlier than he would have ideally. Marc Hershey was behind Alaphilippe, as I said, and he had a fair gap to Alaphilippe's back wheel. Now, I think he was trying to do what Kwiatkowski has done to Sagan in like E3 Haralbeka, where he leaves a gap to try and then have a better acceleration past him. It's pretty common to see riders do that. But Alaphilippe's kick was so strong that even though I think Hershey did kick at the same time, he couldn't get into that slipstream straight away. And Alaphilippe's initial kick meant that Hershey was pretty much sprinting without too much of a benefit of a draft. And then, but Hershey came back at him and his, his late surge meant that if this sprint had been another 25 metres, Mark Hershey would have taken his first Tour de France stage win. But Alaphilippe, hats off to the man, kept, uh, kept the peloton at bay that was chasing them, made sure Adam Yates was pretty much out of it by having Yates in a bad position, was watching Hershey at the same time, had the kick to win a headwind sprint, I think it was, starting his sprint with like 200 metres to go or longer than he thought, initiated the attack on Col de Cartagena. I could go on and on about this man. An incredible stage win for him. And he went into the yellow jersey or has gone into the yellow jersey because of the bonus seconds at the end of this stage. Did you? What did you think? Where did you rank this in Alaphilippe's performance as Benji? I mean, an incredible performance. Honestly, it was really captivating, really intriguing finish. Very intense because I also didn't know who could win out of the two because we had Hershey already do magnificent sprints in the past in reduced bunch sprints, 45 plays in San Sebastian, if I recall correctly, last year. And I knew he had something in his tank when it comes to sprinting. And additionally, he looks a bit more muscly. So I was like directly making that connection towards being a bit of a power sprinter at the end of a harder stage. Even though he's a bit of a puncher, he's a bit of an odd body type for a, for a puncher. That's at least how I see he or she. And in the end of the stage, I felt like it was honestly unpredictable who of the two could win that sprint at the end. But Alaphilippe, I think, uses his experience a bit more in the sprint, and it really paid off by that really powerful first kick. And in the end, we basically said it on the uh, preview that we thought that on the second stage, Alaphilippe would be taking the yellow jersey. And here we are. He is here with the yellow jersey. Did we say that? Yeah, we said that. We also said about the yellow jersey among his shoulders that it will influence the coming stages because... If he's in yellow now, that means that he won't be able to go into breakaways. And I think about stage five or something, we said something along the lines of Alaphilippe might not be going for the stage because he's probably going to be in yellow already. And therefore, he might not be allowed to go into breakaway. Something along those lines, at least. All right. Well, I guess that's why everyone should have listened to the Lantern Rouge Cycling podcast with Benji Nice and Tour de France preview because, yeah, we called it. And I thought, honestly... I. All jokes aside, I, I did think this was what was going to happen today. I thought it, it was almost a certainty that Alaphilippe was going to try and do what he did. Um, it's obviously never a certainty to actually win the stage and go into yellow, but and everyone knew he was going to do that as well. We Everyone knew there was going to be the, the attack from Alaphilippe on uh, the Quatre Chemin. Hats off to Dries Devenens, actually. We didn't mention him at the time. He did a pretty good job, actually. He came past Hessink at almost double the speed of Jumbo Visma to set up that Alaphilippe attack, which was super impressive. But yeah, hats off to Alaphilippe. We thought he was going to do this. I thought he was 
almost a certainty to win at least one stage in this Tour de France. And we should make a quick comment on GC. Now, with COVID, this is such a bizarre Tour de France because I'm not sure if ASO or whoever has said how many, the minimum number of stages there needs to be for it to constitute a race and for there to be a GC winner appointed. But I don't think it's such a bad thing for Alaphilippe to have yellow on his shoulders, to be honest. I thought it was a good idea for him to go for it, and he did so. But do you think, Benji, that Jumbo Visma or Ineos should be worried at all by Alaphilippe going into yellow? I don't believe they should be worried regarding the overall GC. I do believe that they should be worried about the fact that he's most likely going to be in there for quite a few days. I don't see him getting out of that on Monte Guadalajara at stage 5. Then stage 6 is Privas, I think, so... On paper, I'd say that he doesn't lose it there either. So I'm already looking at a potential stage from Mio to Lavor or something. I think that's the name of the stage, which has the three big mountains. And I actually had him as a potential favorite for winning the stage that day. But again, because he might be in yellow that day, that might not give him the freedom that he needs to get in the breakaway to win that stage. So all of the predictions that we had regarding Alaphilippe in the future might be influenced by this. And also the thing that makes this victory a bit more beautiful is the fact that he said before the Tour de France, or at least someone near Quickstep said that Philippe wanted to make it something special for, unfortunately, his dad passed away during the last year, and he wanted to make the Tour de France something special. So I guess he started that today, and I'm happy for it. Yeah, I'm super happy for him. I'm happy for Quickstep as well. And they, we said they brought a squad to this Tour de France, which is more focused, I think, on supporting Alaphilippe's, or I think you said this, supporting Alaphilippe's stage wins rather than Sam Bennett's stage wins. And the proof was in the last climb today. You know, if you want to think about how it's easier in the NBA to think about like, okay, so the coach puts in a three-point shooter uh, because they need more points rather than maybe a better defensive player. But here you can see, instead of Shane Archibald, who wouldn't have been able to um, pace Alaphilippe, obviously, on the, on that last climb. He's a lead-out man for Sam Bennett. Instead of someone like him, they have Remy Cavagna or Dre Stevenens picked in the squad who can do a whole variety of things. Bob Jungels as well took over. We didn't mention him. Almost impossible to pick him out without the Luxembourg National Champs jersey. Riders like him who are versatile, that's who Quickstep picked because they wanted to support Alaphilippe's ambitions winning stages like today. So you didn't think it meant too much for the overall GC, Benji. I have to agree with you as well. I'm a man that likes to overreact to things as much as possible. But if you guys want to know, I mean, using the betting markets as a proxy, not talking about bets at all, but just the betting markets as a proxy for what people think is going to happen on GC, have a guess, Benji, at how much today's stage and the result affected the overall odds and what people think about Roglic, Bernal and Dumoulin? Well, I don't know how much notes usually change, but I don't believe it influenced it too much. But I do believe that maybe Dumoulin was like touched a bit because of the crash, but I don't know if bookmakers react to that so instantly. So tell me. From what I saw straight after the stage, zero happened to Roglic's odds. Um, In fact, Primoz Roglic odds since the conclusion of the stage have come down. So from what I've seen, Dumoulin maybe went out a little bit, but it seems like no one really cares about what happened today for overall GC. 
it's kind of what people have expected to happen. Like it's not unusual for Alaphilippe to be going into yellow. And given the rest of the profile and how Alaphilippe was climbing when the pace was really hot in stage two of the Criterium du Dauphiné, Jumbo Visma and Ineos are not too concerned about him having 10 to 20 seconds on them. But I think people asked us to preview tomorrow's stage, Benji. We both agreed it's not too much mattering for overall and for overall GC what happened. But tomorrow's stage, Nice into Cisteron, a rolly stage. And yeah, what do you make of tomorrow? And you can probably remind me better what we said in the preview for tomorrow's stage. When it comes to the stage, it's basically a flat finish, a bit of an uphill false flat finish, I'd say. But throughout the stage, there's plenty of ups and downs at the start, which could influence the peloton when it comes to who's in there at the end. But regarding this stage, I believe that it's going to be somewhat the same as the first stage, preferably without the crash and the neutralization. But I don't expect the peloton to go too hard. And the fact that Christoph got over the Turini at a peloton that was pacing relatively decently and the other sprinters dropped in the last two-ish kilometers of the Turini only, I believe that the peloton will use the stage quite simply at a lower pace at the start and towards the end just go for the sprint. I really believe that this is going to be a sprint potentially advantageous to riders who go over harder terrains, but I don't know. I had Sagan for this one, but I'm really unsure about it. And I generally can't tell which sprinter could take it here because I feel like the sprinting field is so close together at the top that it could generally be anybody taking it here. I don't remember who you picked, honestly. I think I might have picked Peter Sagan for this stage as well. I can't remember, but from what I've seen based on new information in stage one, Caleb Ewans lost John Degenkolb and Philip Gilbert. They didn't start today. I'm not sure if we mentioned that at the top of the show. So he's already lost two riders or two members of his Lotto Sadar lead-out train. In the preview pod, though, I think I was very clear in my opinion then, which was, Bennett and Ewan are like a big cut above the rest and they're the pure sprinters and there's a big gap to the other guys. And I think what we've seen in stage one and I think seeing the team that Quickstep brought and our opinions on that being correct, it being not so great, a lead-out focused team and Ewan losing two of his riders from his lead-out, I think the level between the sprinters is very, very similar and it's all going to come down to who gets into a better position. You know, Mads Pedersen could have just as easily won stage one. He says if he was in a better position and didn't get boxed in, he could have won or should have won. I just did a video about Mads Pedersen actually before today's stage saying he's a very, very underrated sprinter and we're starting to see that now. And Trek are going to ride for him in the sprint tomorrow. Case Bowl looked really good. He came third in stage one. So I think it's going to be... Similar riders to stage one, Christoph, Case, Case Bowl, and Mads Pedersen. And there's a fair few question marks over Ewan and Bennett. But my pick for tomorrow is, once again, Alexander Christoph. I'm changing my pick, but I think Sagan will come top. I think Sagan will come top five as well. I mean, if you guys go and look at the profile, it should be a sprint because... Yeah, it should be a sprint. I doubt a breakaway is going to get too much license. Um, is there anything else you want to say about the stage, Benji? You picked Sagan, right? I do want to note a few things outside of the stage that might influence the stage and the ones after that. The fact that at the start of today's stage, we had 
a few people in the peloton also next to Dangle not starting and so forth that were really hurt. We had Godu that basically looked like he was going to step out of the race at the start of the stage. And it looks like he came through in the end and didn't really have that towards the end of the stage. So that's good. Pino also at the start didn't look too bright, but he also finished in the front group. So no issues there. We lost Martinez when it comes to a potential GC, unless he comes back three minutes. Do you believe that it's totally closed down for the GC in the future for Martinez? Or do you believe that he can still bring something back knowing that he's three minutes and I think 32 seconds behind at the moment? I think a podium is going to be pretty difficult for him um, because, yeah, three minutes is a long, is a big gap to make up. But especially because you mentioned people who weren't looking so good, Godot not looking so good. Some better news is Emmanuel Buchwin was is looking really good. And his team and co have said he's not in any pain at all, really, with that hematoma that he had on his back from the Dauphiné crash. And I saw him in really good position over the top of the last climb today. So Bookman looking much better. I'm much, I, I'm very hopeful about Bookman coming overall in the top three. Um, I was concerned about his recovery from that crash, given what he said in the lead up, but he's looking really good. And another, for a rider who has come back from an injury or is literally still injured with a broken collarbone, Maximilian Schachmann came ninth in today's stage with currently having a broken collarbone. I don't even know how that's possible, Benji. Hats off to those two Bora guys, tough as nails. Tomorrow looks to be a pretty interesting stage in the last probably 30 to 40 kilometers. I'm not sure where the sprint, I can't really see any intermediate sprints except for there's none before the one, about 40 kilometers to go. So we'll expect to see Sagan contesting that uh, and probably getting more green jersey points. I think Alexander Kristoff is now wearing the green jersey, Alaphilippe in the yellow jersey, and I'm not sure who'll be in the white jersey. I think Mark Kirschi will be in the white jersey for the best young rider. But yeah, it's nothing on GC tomorrow, but an interesting stage nonetheless because we're going to really see whether these other sprinters can ascend into this, you know, Pedersen and Case Bowl, can those young guys step into the level of Tour de France pure sprint stage winner? That's what I want to see, and I don't know the answer to that question just yet. But any other last news from you, Benji? That's basically it. I do want to add on that it has now become clear that Cosnefoy is going to be wearing the polka dot jersey tomorrow because we weren't sure yet at the start of this. So I think the rule is that the first rider to cross the line. No, I, I honestly don't know. I'm going to cut that out. No, don't cut it out. The rules the rules are pretty confusing. So I have no idea. But we're just going to take the information as it is. We think Cosnefra is in the King of the Mountain jersey, but we could be wrong. We record this straight after. Okay, that's roughly about it for today, I guess. We had a wonderful stage in my honest opinion towards the end. When it comes to tomorrow, some action is on the menu. We want to thank all of you for all the feedback we've had so far. We're going to try and adapt towards your feedback. For example, some people have already commented that on the YouTube videos. We should show our faces and such on the podcast on YouTube to make sure that it's more interactive. We're planning to do that. I've invested in equipment for that and we are surely listening. So be sure to rate the podcast on your preferred platform at this very moment if you do want to see more of this. We are enjoying it. I hope you are as well. I think Lantern is hoping that you are enjoying it as well. Any last words for you? No, I've got no further comments for you, Benji. Hope you all enjoyed it, guys. Ciao.